We're drawing close to the end of the year, 2014, 2557. You measure the time, the calendar, nowadays according to the Western or Roman calendar. December is the last month, December 31st, last day, 1st of January, first day of a new year. Obviously this is the conventional reality, the Samuti Banyati that the world uses. Conventional or assumed reality something very important for us to learn from and understand as we practice. Because it obviously affects us all the time, the way we think, view the world, and view ourselves, view our experience. Conventional reality is obviously something that's useful. Shows how skillful human beings are living in the world. We develop different means, skillful means, so that we can live together over seven billion people in the world conveniently of all kinds of conventions, agreed agreements between people on time, money, all kinds of things. Obviously it's an agreement, it's never going to be an exact, precise truth, because it's an agreement based on concepts and ideas. We can't really be absolutely sure that the Christian calendar or the Buddhist calendar is exact in terms of numbers of days, months, years since the Buddha attained Parinibbana or since he was enlightened. Historically there's always some disagreement over dates. It's still a useful convention to have a calendar. But we're, as Ajahn Chah said, seekers of truth. So conventions are things we look at and learn from. And sometimes we have to go beyond them, transcend them through our practice. But that doesn't mean to say conventional reality should just be chucked out because it's only convention. We use conventional reality and convention for our advantage, especially in the beginning of our practice. When we become Buddhist monks, it's a convention to shave our head wear a certain kind of robe, certain style, colour, 
the convention of the ordination ceremony and so on. And then we take on the Vinaya, another convention. Very detailed, refined training rules. Many of them, hundreds of them. But these are skillful means. Even though we've heard teachings and reflections on the very highest ultimate truth, the Paramatta Satya, reflections on and insights into impermanence and satisfactoriness, not self. We still use the conventions of the Vinaya, the practices that we're taught, <coughs> the teachings we've heard, as stepping stones to get to the point where the mind can penetrate the ultimate reality and penetrate the Four Noble Truths. We can't just set aside conventional reality just like that. It's like Ajahn Chah, uh, Ajahn Mahabua used to say, on the level of sila, we use the convention of there being a person who keeps precepts, keeps the Vinaya. Even on the level of samadhi, meditation, there's a person who meditates. We say we have a peaceful meditation, or not peaceful, good meditation, bad meditation. There's one who meditates, puts effort in. We still refer to it in a conventional way as a person doing the practice. But on the deeper level, particularly in the level of vipassana, insight, you're investigating deep and going beyond that normal conventional self and then it's just a, it's a level of paramatta satya coming to bring the mind to see ultimate reality, ultimate truth, to see the Dhamma, ultimately to experience Nibbana, which is beyond the conventional reality. But because conventional reality is coming from the wisdom, the intelligence of human beings, we don't just chuck it out in the beginning, we use it. So we can trust in the wisdom and compassion of the Buddha that he gave the practices and trainings that we do as a monk for our benefit as a skillful means. And if we reflect, we can see, well, it's a skillful means, it's helpful, saves us time. We've all been conditioned by ignorance, craving and attachment for many lifetimes. So that process is very well established in our minds. And the nature of delusion is such that we don't see it. We don't see our attachments, we don't see how suffering arises. So the Buddha in his wisdom and compassion gave us the Vinaya to save us time, save us making mistakes, taking wrong turns, going down dead ends in our practice.
it's a vehicle that helps us achieve Nibbana and we can learn partly from other other bhikkhus mistakes you know, the original bhikkhus who made mistakes errors in their practice and the Buddha corrected them and laid down a rule sometimes we find the numbers of rules and practices, the details, a little bit overwhelming. The mind has been brought up, especially in the Western world, to just seek freedom and individual freedom, or what we perceive to be individual freedom. Obviously, the the mind is still shackled by the kilesis. We don't realize that, but with our a superficial notion of freedom we come into the training it seems like the Vinaya can be quite limiting a burden so we have to reflect back on why the Buddha gave these rules to help us to restrain the kilesas and the damage that they do <coughs> in the time of the Buddha some monks were happy when they heard the news the Buddha attained Parinibbana it's gone he said, oh, now we won't have to keep all those fiddly, fussy rules. If you think about it, all those, particularly the small, minor rules that the mind might want to just dispense with, you can also think, well, they are just minor rules, why can't we also just keep them? Out of respect for the Buddha and our teacher, Ajahn Chah, and for the wisdom of our predecessors, who felt it was useful to keep up the rules. And really it's nothing too difficult for us. Human beings can train themselves, especially when we have a strong motivation, a strong desire. Say for a monk it's the desire to for liberation, to transcend end suffering. We have, if we have faith, confidence in the Buddha, Ajahn Chah and our other teachers, and we have that motivation, it's worth investing the time in learning the Vinaya, training in it as a support for our development of meditation and insight. It's worth it, it's valuable to us, so we put effort in. We can do that in the world as well. Like if you think about driving a car nowadays, the amount of rules, regulations, do's and don'ts to do with driving is quite involved. Yet human beings generally seem to be able to do that quite well because they have a desire. They want to be able to use a car, travel around to do many things, seek out happiness in different ways. They're willing to abide by the rules, learn them, pass exams, all drive on the same side of the road, even though people sometimes break the rules, generally people keep them. They're motivated, they want something, the convenience of a car. The Vinaya is the same, if you want freedom, then you learn the Vinaya, because it's a 
tool that will free you from the kilesis. And it provides you with a firm foundation for developing mindfulness and insight, the very precise tools which will liberate us from the conditioning effect of the kilesis. So we learn about conventional reality. There's a bhikkhu, we learn the Vinaya, we learn to train ourselves, how to use the requisites wisely. And for a bhikkhu, you know, to be content, really all we have to have is a place to practice and the four requisites. So our definition of contentment, if you have enough food, accommodation, robes, shelter from the elements and medicines for when you're sick, then you're already set up. You don't have to worry anymore about the basic necessities for the practice. I think everyone could agree we're very well supported here. So we have everything we need to be content. All that's left is to practice. Yet still the mind often doesn't find contentment. Again, that's something to investigate. You know, why are we discontent when we have all the four requisites available? Sometimes it's our past habit, you know, the consumer mentality, the sort of more materialistic view we have of life from the lay life, where we're culturally uh, conditioned to always be seeking more better, different, much more than we really need just to survive. Human beings now, we like to look for all kinds of interesting experiences and brands, possessions, different brands, fashions and so on, which are not necessarily what we need to survive, but they're now, you might say, luxury commodities. And often it's a sense of self that drives that sense of Again, that sense of being an individual who can prove their self-worth by accumulating many different possessions and experiences. As a monk, we have that cultural background to contemplate, to catch it as it arises with mindfulness and wisdom and reflect wisely back on our requisites. We also have a deeper conditioning and the convention of self itself. You know, the way we identify with this body and mind as a self, self-view, Sakayaditi. Again, our background from family and education and cultural conditioning. You know, we're pretty much conditioned to identify with this sense of self. We uh, often measure ourself you know, against the things and the experiences we have. So we say, I'm this person, I live in this country, this neighborhood. These are my parents, my brothers, sisters. And we identify with the people we know and we're related to. We identify with our friends or work colleagues our social set according to income and upbringing and 
background, identify with language and culture, even religion, all as a sense of self. That's obviously very deep, particularly the identification with family. Brought up with family, and obviously they give us so much. Parents and relatives, they surround us and they teach us and educate us, feed us and so on. So we often are identifying with that. This is my family. Sometimes we fall out with our family, so I mean, we identify with them in a negative way. I have fallen out with this person or that person, or I love very much this person or that person. This kind of identification with the convention of self is obviously very deeply ingrained. It's not something one can just cast aside in a few moments. One has to reflect on how it affects the mind. Often we don't realize how strongly we identify, say, with people until something happens to them. They fall ill or they die. If a family member we're strongly linked to dies and we, often we feel suddenly a big vacuum or a hole opens up in our life. Why is that? It's because we've identified our sense of self in relationship to that person. Or we lose a job. The identity of with that job suddenly is gone. So there's a great sense of loss, separation, big hole in our lives again. These aspects of you know, the superficial reality, the conventional reality, are still affecting us as monks. It's not like you shave your head and suddenly you no longer have attachment to family or past or culture. It's still affecting us. Even as a bhikkhu, we have the conventional reality of a bhikkhu we can attach to, especially the longer we are a bhikkhu, we might attach to our self-identity as a monk, our robes, our bowl, our possessions, simple possessions of a monk, our Vinaya training, our knowledge, our knowledge of the suttas, the Vinaya, of meditation techniques and so on. Even maybe a subtle conceit based around the results of our meditation. We still are investigating self and the self-identity always comes back to the candors, five candors. I remember when Ajahn Chah died, many monks felt a big hole suddenly opened up in their minds, in their lives. Suddenly this charismatic teacher that people had lived with and found even great, had a great debt of gratitude to him thought of him regularly, his teachings, his presence. Even when he was ill, he still had a very powerful presence. Suddenly that's gone. So some monks cried, understandably, or felt very lost or shocked. Those with a foundation in practice, maybe very quickly, that feeling was reflected on and passed away. Others found it quite overwhelming. Some monks even disrobed shortly after Ajahn Chah died. It's the same process going on, self-identity 
with the things around us, the people around us, coming back to ourselves, these candors in relationship to the world around us. So this is food for investigation, food for truth, looking into the deeper truths of these things. This is why the Buddha gave this practice, dana, sila, samadhi, panya. Often another aspect, when we contemplate conventional reality, often because we want to save time nowadays, Part of our cultural conditioning, we're all in a rush to get where we want to go. We're ambitious and desiring of quick success, quick results. We don't want to spend a lot of time practicing. We'd like to attain Nibbana quickly, gain insight quickly. So often we look at the teachings and the practices of Buddhists, even Buddhist monks, we say, well, that part maybe I don't really need to spend much time on because that's only the basics, you know, with ideas of, particularly when we say making merit. So um, often we think, oh, I don't need to do much dana and understand the precepts. I just want to do my vipassana quickly, gain the insight, attain sotapanna. we also have to look at that one, that person who wants the quick attainment, who wants to dispense with these perceived superficial practices or not so necessary or important practices. You have to look more deeply at that way of reflecting on things because it can still trip us up. Often it leads to quick despair. If we jump, jump straight into just practicing vipassana, no need to do dana or sila or even samatha, just straight vipassana. Often we get very disappointed and end up being quite disillusioned with the practice because we can't sustain the insight. We don't have enough stability of mind or well-being. In Thailand they say we don't have enough merit because we didn't want to make any merit, we just wanted to attain. You notice you know, most of the teachers, or all of the teachers that I can think of who attained Magapala Nibbana, you know, they did invest time in, you might say, making merit, understanding the value of merit and how to make merit in daily life as a bhikkhu, and doing service for the Sangha, studying the Vinaya, keeping the Vinaya listening to Dhamma, studying the Dhamma, serving the teacher, serving the laity, being helpful, being kind, generous. All these sort of practices we often say is just making merit. doesn't mean to say they did it without reflection. They might consider what's a wise way to spend time, what's useful for the practice. They certainly did many meritorious actions during the course of their practice. Um, if we want to let go of greed, anger, delusion, well, sometimes we have to just do very obvious practices to counter them, to bring up non-greed, non-anger, non-delusion. So practicing dana, service, attending on senior monks, acharya helping out, 
supporting the laity, assisting them as well. These can all be very good practices for directly letting go of craving and attachment. Listening to Dhamma, learning Dhamma, learning chanting. All the parts of the practice that you might say are making merit can be very valuable supportive conditions for the development of samadhi and insight. Sometimes it's also funny to reflect, you know, when great teachers do become enlightened, what do they do after that? Well, they carry on making merit. They carry on helping people, doing good things, teaching the Dhamma, often you know, running monasteries, teaching, traveling and so on. Obviously, if the mind has really attained the Lokutra Dhamma, attained the end of attachment, end of craving, then we no longer call it making merit. There's no self to make merit. It's just pure compassion, pure wisdom like the Buddha. But in practice, you know, what they're doing is meritorious actions, even if you say the mind is no longer making merit, there's no more karma made. They just carry on because that's what they were doing before. Obviously there's a time and place for these things. You know, there's a time to meditate. And sometimes we put lots of effort into sitting and walking and have, don't have very much to do with other people. But there'll be other times when we can still practice our meditation and we're still serving and helping others as well. And this is something we start to gain experience in as a bhikkhu, understanding the value of conventions and conventional reality and how to use them to support the practice. We don't just blindly believe things, but then we don't just reject everything either. We learn to consider wisely. Another thing the Buddha emphasized over and over again in his teachings is you know, to understand the difference between merit and demerit, bunya and bhapa. You know, when we chant, we chant how we're the owners of our karma, heirs to our karma. Whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill. For good is bunya, meritorious, wholesome karma. For ill, unwholesome karma. Bhapa, bunya and bhapa. We have to become skilled in differentiating between skillful and unskillful mental states, intentions. Karma is intentions. What is bunya? Wholesome, skillful intention. What is bhapa? Unwholesome, unskillful intention. We have to know that in our mind, know the harm that comes from unskillful intentions. When bhapa arises in the mind, we have some form of defiled thinking. To know that, to know oh, this is defilement, this will lead to suffering. What kind of suffering? Well reflect. Reflect on your experience. You know, what is anger like? What does it do to the mind, to the body? What is greed like? How does it affect you? Does it make you feel peaceful and happy, content? What is delusion like? States of delusion, dullness, confusion, wrong beliefs, wrong views. What does it do to the mind? 
this is our study. You know, this is developing mindfulness and then wise reflection back onto the mind. So you become skilled in identifying bunya and bhapa. See how unskillful states of mind keep building up that coarse sense of self. Bring a lot of dukkha as well. When we have dukkha, the sense of self is very strong. Meritorious states of mind help us to start to calmly let go of the sense of self. Obviously we can still attach to merit, wholesome dhammas with a sense of self. But as we keep reflecting on that, they can help us get to the point where we can let go of even the most subtle sense of self that might form around the happiness that comes from our good actions, from samadhi or from basic insight. We have to learn how to be skillful in understanding the mind, what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, and then act accordingly. Unwholesome dhammas are to be abandoned and prevent them from arising again. Wholesome dhammas are to be encouraged, brought up, developed, brought into existence. And this is this is right effort, so this is where we can't be apathetic. You know, when we notice unskillful states of mind, then we have to act, consciously let them go, abandon them. We have to bring up the supportive conditions for doing that, so bring up the mindfulness, the effort, the understanding by listening to Dhamma, bring up the clear comprehension. As we chant regularly, Atapi Sampajano Satima, ardent, fully aware, we know our minds, we're fully comprehending, comprehending the nature of the mind, whether it's wholesome, unwholesome, and then letting go of the unwholesome. These are qualities that we're bringing up all the time through our practice. Whether we're doing chores, we're walking around the monastery, we're sitting, meditation, whatever activity or posture, your mind is at work. And there's opportunity to train and practice there. Much of our practice is about developing and sustaining mindfulness because that puts us into the best possible position to actually contemplate these things. You're mindful of the Vinaya, mindful of the meditation object, mindful of the requisites. There's many aspects to developing mindfulness, clear comprehension, but the result is it brings the mind to the present moment in that place where it's quiet and still and can actually see and contemplate, knows what needs to be done. You know, when unskillful dhammas arise, you know, sometimes just being mindful of them is enough to let them go and abandon them because the mind sees clearly this is unskillful, this is a cause of suffering. Other times the mind has to work harder, have to work harder to contemplate, bring up some skillful means 
to allow the abandonment to take place. Especially if it's some strong emotion, strong conditioning. Even if you've been very peaceful in meditation, you can come out and you say you see something very beautiful or seductive, or straight away lust, sensual desire can arise. Even the greatest rishis and meditators, you know, even with great psychic powers floating through the air, can see a beautiful woman and then come crashing down to the ground as all their mindfulness and wisdom is lost at that moment. You come out of a deep meditation and then somebody calls you names or doesn't give you the respect you want and you can get very angry. In a moment the mind can just flip from being in great bliss, peaceful, happy, suddenly great emotional rage. As we know, rage can come up over the most tiniest little things. The only way to counter this possibilities keep bringing up mindfulness and sustaining it so that you're in a position to reflect on what's coming up. As we know it's one thing to attain some peace from sitting and walking meditation. It's even harder to keep it going. And when you've finished your sit, you get up and you walk away, how quickly the mindfulness might dissipate. That's where you have to work hard keep the mindfulness going after you've attained a bit of peace and quiet. See if you can maintain that mindfulness so that you're in a state of readiness or heedfulness. Heedfulness, the Buddha said, is nothing, no quality more useful to a bhikkhu than heedfulness. It's the elephant footprint in the forest. All the other dhammas fit in to the footprint, all the other footprints of the animals fit into the footprint of the element, elephant. All the other dhammas are slightly less useful than heedfulness. Heedfulness you know, is made up of mindfulness, clear comprehension, effort, wisdom. It's not one thing alone. It's hiriotipa, sense of shame, fear of the consequences of wrongdoing as well. It's a number of different training factors. But particularly when you're meditating, you're after your sit, after your walk, be heedful so you don't lose everything and suddenly flip into another defiled state. That can often contribute to some doubt. We say, oh, I did all that meditation and I'm still getting angry or greedy, dullness, caught into doubting. Really, it's we aren't maintaining that heedfulness enough. So you have to keep bringing up effort in the practice. If we do that, then little by little, some of the insight will stick. Some of that wisdom will stick. The experience will stay with us. And then things get a little easier. We're less overcome by doubt. We're less overcome by different emotional states. We understand our past karma. We understand how to deal with it as it arises. And we're making fresh good karma. That fresh good karma is the best, best way to find real peace and happiness. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight. You can uh, do some chanting after.